Welcome to the Danny Goldberg Rock and Rolls Hour. In this podcast, Danny shares his longtime connection to the path of the heart, as well as his very engaged life of social activism. If you are interested in supporting Danny's podcast, please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Danny. Hi, this is Danny Goldberg, and this is Rock and Rolls, and I'm talking today to Richard J. R.J. Esco, who is a I first became aware of as a writer. His progressive views frequently appear in the Huffington Post, among other places, Common Dreams, a lot of other places. He also has a radio show called This is the Zero Hour. He also was one of Bernie Sanders' primary speechwriters during his primary campaigns, and he is, um, but I want to start the conversation with uh, asking you about something that you told me you're doing next week, uh, a conference on spiritual spirituality and politics, spiritual politics with Marion Williamson. And that seems to fit into the zone of what I like to talk about. And, I'm, and I don't know anything about it. Well, that conference, first of all, thanks for having me, Danny. Se- secondly, um, I was Bernie's only writer. Uh, I, I, I have to. I have to. In fact, his wife Jane tells me that that I'm the only writer he's ever hired um, because he, he he likes to write himself, and he's in his way an extremely good writer. Uh, and the conference is um, is actually this weekend. It is uh, so. I think it's the second February second starts tomorrow through the fourth, and it is here in Washington D.C. Uh, Marianne Williamson has an organization she calls Sister Giant, and I think among other things, it's the meld of spirituality and politics, which she has written about a lot. Um, and uh, I, I was like, what she has to say on that subject. Bernie is going to be a keynote speaker, uh, along with a number of other folks. Uh, so it should be it should be a great event. I will and, say, unlike your show it takes me a few weeks for these things to go up so for anyone listening he is speaking about something that already happened but as we're speaking about it it has not happened yet yeah and the upcoming constitutional convention should be good no i'm kidding (laughs) Uh, (laughs) um so you know the topic is as i just saw when the uh when the uh announcement came out is on uh I guess uh, on uh, putting love into politics, which is I need that because I haven't been as filled with love watching the political events of the last month as perhaps I normally am. Well, there are not that many people that I know of who are involved with uh, progressive politics as directly as you are, who also uh, have a sort of explicitly spiritual frame. And I know this has been an interest of yours for a while. What what is your you know belief system? Do you is there a name for it, or is it something you've created yourself? Well, well, you know, I mean, I, I I'm syncretic, as they say, to to a certain extent. I mean, I borrow a lot from Sufism. I I, I followed Buddhism for uh, many years and uh, wrote about it quite a bit. And uh, I went to Africa and studied with some Muslim Sufis there. So I'm, it's amazing to me. I'm not 
uh, yet on the um, no-fly list because uh, I've spent a lot of time with those folks who are from all over the Islamic world. So, um, you know, I would say, in a sense, pretty eclectic, but uh, uh, maybe a little more higher power-centered than uh, is usually the case with someone who's studied a lot in the Buddhist tradition, for example. Talk a little bit about Sufism, because I don't know that much about it. One of the things that's given me some angst is my lack of knowledge about Islam. It's a billion people connect with what I believe is the one God, whether you use the word God or not, through that pathway. And obviously there's so much fear in, in the West associated with it because of, uh, you, you know, the tiny minority of people who, who invoke that name for terrorism. What 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 is Sufism? How is it different from other kinds of Islam, as you understand it? Well, you know, I mean, there are two schools of thought about that, but the the uh, people I know the best in that tradition say it's not different; that it's just a distillation. I mean, to a certain extent, you could consider it the mystical or Gnostic offshoot of of Islam. It, it you know, it's comparable in some ways to uh, without, you know, the elaborate additional belief systems is somewhat comparable to, I guess you could say to Kabbalism right. in Judaism or Vedanta in Hinduism. Uh, but it's really, uh, it, it's really trying to get to the spiritual essence of the Muslim religion, which, uh, most of them would tell you is identical to the spiritual essence of any other religion. So in in the political world, um, it's it is hard to, to to tune into love unless you make a conscious effort to do it. The bitterness is so great, not not only among people that we disagree with, but I find some of the most painful, angry arguments that I've witnessed, and I'm embarrassed to say, been part of over the years, were with people I agreed with, but who about the big issues, but but who uh, just had different tactical, strategic ideas. Ramdas talks a lot about the fact that his guru told him to love everybody. And, and, and he often gives us an example of, of a particular test was to love Republicans. And, and it's, it's people who follow him lately know that he's had actually a picture of Donald Trump on his puja table. Huh. And previous to that, in the last few years, he had had George W. Bush when he was president. He had John Boehner. With the idea, uh, A, to send blessings to people with power so that they're informed by the blessings. But I also felt to try to to try to see people who just seem so offensive to to an ethical uh, belief system as somehow being part of this one God. So you've been in the in the pit of it. The bitterness between the Hillary and the Bernie people was great. Some of it still persists. Uh, I am somebody who voted for Bernie in the primaries and voted for Hillary in the general election. I'm completely happy about both of those votes and never had any doubt about either of them. But there are there was a lot of that. And now the atmosphere of fear, anxiety, pain, and rage uh, as, as different uh, people in the society have to confront this new version of America, whatever it's going to be, tested even greater. Inside your own head, how do you how do you reconcile these an ethical belief system which you're a passionate advocate for, and a spiritual concept in which God is in everybody? 
Well, I mean, I think one way to go at that, and I don't want to make myself sound like I'm in any way accomplished at this because I struggle with it every day, as do we all, and and stray off the path uh, and rarely am on the path I should be on. But I, I would say, first of all, by recognizing that everybody thinks they're right based on their own level of perception and based on the we're all getting a tiny fraction of the information that's out there about the world we live in and we all think we're right based on the the information we have so it's easier to love somebody if you recognize that you know they think uh, they think they're heroic you know i've had this conversation with thomas frank who wrote the book what's the matter with kansas and at least the way the book was interpreted by a lot of people a lot of people took that book as you know look at these silly people in kansas these republicans who vote against their own economic self-interest what, what idiots why, you know why are they voting for abstract ideas above their economic self-interest which are clearly being hurt by these republican corporate Koch brothers types. And my answer to that is what's more noble for a human being to do than vote against their economic self-interest in pursuit of something they consider to be the higher good. So, I mean, it, one way to look at it is there's an element of heroism in some of their foolishness as well as, well as hate and other things. And I also was very helped by a Buddhist teacher named uh, Ken McLeod, who uh, talked about the fact that uh, you know, people who want to carry and display guns and are against abortion and against immigration, uh, these are generally white people who are seeing their whole world collapse around them. And these are ways to try to preserve their world. It's wrong. I think it's wrong. But these are people who are frightened because they think their world is disappearing which it is, because we all know everything's impermanent, everything's disappearing, and but they can't, it, it, it terrifies them, and at the same time, their way of life is slipping down, and so they're, they're saying, well, no, let me keep the birth rate up for people like myself. Let me keep the people who I think are different out. Let me carry a gun so I can't be attacked. They're just driven by a hundred forms of fear, as they say in 12-step programs. And, um, you know, that helps me have a certain amount of compassion and love for them. Yeah. The, Thomas Frank also wrote a more recent book called uh, Listen Liberal, which was, uh, you know, very, very uh, critical uh, and can, uh, of the sort of uh, Clinton-Obama. Uh, and I would add Jimmy Carter's presidency to that list. I think Jimmy Carter has been an amazing ex-president, but as president, he had a lot of the same uh, uh, deficiencies, I think, that Clinton and Obama had, which was, which was, you know, too much deference to the big banks and to the moneyed interests and, and, and an anxiety about uh, being perceived as too left or, right. or, or not a, a feeling that they could persuade people. There's been this uh, sense in the Democratic Party, as long as I can remember, that just if you went too far left, you just couldn't possibly win. And and the big advertisement that a lot of people bought into, I think, for some of the candidates that were nominated was that supposedly they could win. In the case of Bill Clinton and Barack Obama, was it true? In the case of Hillary Clinton, it was not true in terms of actually gaining power, which is the purpose right. of running for election, not having a mathematical argument that you can make online. Right. And, um, and, and Bernie Sanders... I think poked some holes in that in that theory 
that right. that 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 that, that ideas that were considered so-called left were not mainstream, and um, there were idiosyncrasies to the Sanders Clinton race in particular. Uh, you know, the strong uh, attachment that a lot of African-American leaders and people had to the Clintons and a lack of a similar history with Bernie that probably made a big difference in the outcome. And I think there was a sense of that her knowledge of the mechanics of power was unique. And but I don't think there was any mandate for centrist ideas versus progressive ideas writ large that, that one could that one could draw and and what do you think Bernie did that was so different from previous left candidates? I mean, Dennis Kucinich and Bernie probably agreed about 99 percent of issues. And Dennis Kucinich never was able to connect in, in any primary with any with any mass audience. Uh, Jesse Jackson, even, you know, certainly an incredible thought leader and historical figure, never came as close. What What is I- it that Bernie did that you think that that was different and and what about that experience informs your thoughts about what should happen next yeah it's a great question danny i mean i think that uh, a lot of things happen okay first i mean there are those i think probably one of the reasons that uh bernie uh hired me that reached out to me was because I've been saying for 10 years that if you strip away this self-serving argument that uh, corporate Democrats, for lack of a better term, have been using about electability, and if you strip away the polling knowledge that says that voters out there say, I'm a Republican versus I'm a Democrat, even I'm a conservative versus I'm a liberal, if you strip all that away and, and look at the polling on the issues, most voters want to protect and expand Social Security. Most voters want to protect and expand Medicare. Most voters want to do more, believe it or not, to help poor people than our society does. So on and on, on issue after issue, if you strip aside the labels, we have a kind of left electorate. I mean, I think that was part of it. I think the second part of it was the rise of the millennial generation that is dramatically different, forward-thinking, democratic socialist to an extent that was unthinkable even in our generation uh, during the 60s and 70s. And so I, I think it's all of those things. And then I, with Bernie, I also think it was the matter of, you know, what I was calling at the time, it's kind of pretentious sounding, but the meta campaign, you know, the fact that Bernie was clearly not a politician. Everything about Bernie that people said made him unelectable. He was old. He was uh, a little uh, disheveled. He was, uh, I'm being polite. He was, uh, you know, he was, uh, did, he didn't, he wasn't slick. He wasn't smooth. He just said the same stuff over and over again, which is supposed to be a deal killer in political speech writing. And uh, all of it, I think, electrified, especially young people, because they were getting the truth. They felt they were not being, you know, uh, bullshitted for the first time. Is it okay to swear on your show? For, it is for, completely okay. All right. For the first time in their lives, it's like somebody saying, yeah, you know, uh, you know, this is the way it's, I, I don't care if you like it or not. This is what I think. But they, uh, and by the way, quick story. I, my, I think my first week with Bernie, I wrote him a video. And when you're trying to be a good speech writer, you listen to the candidate. He gives his talk. I, I, I'm, he makes puts it into his own words. I'm writing down the little phrases so that I know to use. And he's saying all these things in my view and all of these things that Bernie says. And a month later, everybody knew them. I didn't even need to take notes because yeah. that's how quickly he took off. 
So I hope that answers your question. Well, it's a, it's a it's a part of the answer. That's for sure. It was, um, and I also, I mean, I'm a huge believer that that the millennial generation is the key to any solutions going forward, other than being victims of the status quo, and that the uh, now now how do we get? You know, there are obviously people in the political world at the operative level who are your kind of your competitors or peers who have their own self-interest with regard to to these things. They're, they're defensive and uh, they're looking for their next job. They have to deal with funders and and, uh, you know, they 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 have other other uh, agendas. But but I think the vast majority of people who were for Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders uh, and I think the majority of people who work for both of them, uh, you know, are trying to do the right thing. And, 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 and I think that it's hard enough to deal with the Koch brothers, Donald Trump, uh, and the other dark forces out there, uh, the vast array of money and uh, an enormous amount of ignorance with, and the idea that there's this kind of ongoing schism uh, on the uh, losing side of the general election is just a luxury. I just don't think we can afford, but it's such a deep psychological kind of place, these divisions. It's a tribal kind of a division between people who view themselves as mainstream and people who view themselves on the left. And I really do believe there's just as much tribalism on the left as there is in the center. I mean, I know a lot of people who I agree with on all these issues and who are burning people who, to me, are uh, uh, closed-minded. Uh, and, uh, but, but we have to have some, uh, uh, rapprochement, at least civility in order to collectively deal with some of the problems we're doing. Uh, what was your experience? You obviously must have encountered and know people that, that are mainstream Democrats that were for Hillary in the primaries. Did you find it a very, did you find any human connectivity there? Or was it just, you're on one side and I'm on the other? Well, I mean, yeah, it was different with every interaction. I found an extraordinary level of unpleasantness and nastiness. I mean, really shocking to me. And I, I've been around a while. I mean, I'm not really, first of all, I'm not a political operative or consultant by nature. I mean, Bernie called me. I wasn't looking for a job in politics. He called me. I believed in what he was trying to do. And when it was over, I had an opportunity to go to work on, you know, in the Senate. I, I turned it down. And a friend of mine said, you're the only guy in this town who would turn down a job. I, I don't want to do that. Right. You know, it's, it's not it's your not, thing. And that's, it's that's, not my thing. Yeah. Uh, but I know a lot of people who do it. And, um, you know, a lot of people inside that system, when Bernie was this insurgent at 3% in the polls, they were saying to me, I wish I was you. I mean, there were people saying, I wish I could be doing that because I believe in it. But a lot, I think a lot of it does have to do with tribalism. I couldn't agree with you more. I think uh, a lot of it has to do with the dark side of identity, meaning that the bright side of identity is the Martin Luther King, the I know who I am, I'm, I know who my people are, I'm going to set my people free, but the best way to do that is by setting us all free. You know, right. and one is and the, the, the dark side is I'm going to I mean, I remember in the uh, Hillary versus Obama uh, uh, primaries of 2008, when I didn't even have a preference at that point, I said, well, you know, I understand the pain of people who wanted first woman president, but at least my biracial God kids 
will have a role model. I, you know, that should be some comfort to some people. And I got emails saying, you know, F your God kids. You know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> really? Is that so? And, and, you know, you could reverse that and flip that too on both sides. So I, I, I think the over identification with a political candidate as a reflection of, of our own ego is always a huge mistake, uh, whoever they are, including yeah. Bernie, by the way. Yes. And one of the, one of the great things about Bernie is to the end, he always said, not me, us. And I remember after he, his campaign was over and he, he spoke at a rally and somebody said, you know, we love you. And he said, I love you too. I really do. But again, it's really not about me. I mean, he never got off that. It's not about me, that egolessness to get back to. Well, the, the terrifying I, thing about language is, of course, Trump uh, co-opted that language. Trump, by the end, was saying it's about us, uh, you know, but. Um, right. He also, though, said only. Only, only I can I, fix it, right. Only I can fix it. I alone can save you, to quote that hit from the, you know, the 1990s, whatever. So, yeah, that was from his speech at the Republican convention. I covered it. It was, it was, it was a gathering of dark forces, man. I'm telling you, it was a frightening experience. I felt like I needed to sage myself when it was all over. It was really dark. Mm. Well, I think that that it's not rational to judge anything by the shrillest hundred people on Facebook right. or the shrillest hundred people who give comments on different internet sites. And part of the digital age has been that the loudest, shrillest, nastiest voices uh, get attention out of proportion. I, I understand that. I mean, I've had some very nasty things about me in the rock and roll world. Six or seven people say something mean uh, you know, after after Scott Weiland uh, died, you know, I wrote something about him and there were half a dozen people saying, oh, you know, you're somebody who's always involved with the musicians. You're the person who, who rock stars kill themselves when they were involved with you. And, you know, it didn't really make me feel very good. No, but I, I had a part of myself that I've trained because I've had to have this conversation with so many performers to say this is six or seven people out of a world of billions yeah. of people. And um I, I don't think it's helpful to look at the nastiest and craziest people on either side. I think that what what would be helpful would be for people on, on different sides who are trying to figure out the future to find some ways of articulating and manifesting some mutual respect so that people out there who are looking for kind of thought leadership don't feel that they're selling out, you know, if they say something good about Bernie or say something Good, good about Hillary Clinton. I mean, I, I definitely identify with Bernie on all the issues more and, and his whole personality and style of being an insurgent and a and more radical figure is consistent with my whole uh, history. But, you know, I understand two things that people liked about Hillary Clinton. One is it is uh, a big deal that we've never had a, a female president sure. in this country when England and India and Indonesia and so many other countries of the world have. And it's it's um, it's it's a it's a painful thing, I think, for a lot of women that she didn't make it. I also think of there's course. a lot of and, people. And I just want to jump yeah. in to say I have enormous compassion for that. I really yeah. do. I, I get that a thousand percent. And, I, you know, I care about that. I do. And, and the other thing is, I think that there are people who convince themselves, I believe wrongly, but who sincerely believe that the amount of change that Obama and Clinton were able to get is the most that anyone could right. get. 
and right. that and that the alternative is Donald Trump or Ted Cruz or George W. Bush, and that there is not another alternative. And um, that's a um, a mental block. There is kind of an opportunity right now to try to right. just reframe this because clearly their theory, which is you may not agree with us on a lot of these things. You may want universal health care and we're just giving you the Affordable Care Act. You may want a $25 minimum wage. We're going to get it to 11 this year and 12 and two years and 15 and five years or whatever. Uh, but but this is all that's doable. And the fact but but one thing that they claimed was that they were the grownups who knew how to win. And they definitely don't. No, you know, they don't. They've not only it, lost the presidency, but that philosophy has lost an unprecedented number of Democratic uh, offices in every uh, city, state, state legislatures, yeah. governors, and 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 the, and the Congress. But for people like us to uh, sort of create a new uh, a new version of what it is to be either a Democrat or, God forbid, if there has to be another party, whatever it's got to be, it's only meaningful if it succeeds. And we have to convince those people that 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 that, that this other approach uh, uh, could be successful. Uh, I think the huge crowds that Bernie attracted are planted kind of in the collective unconscious now of a possibility of that. Um, but um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm nervous about this moment of Trumpism where the left is so addicted to the next 24 hours of protest that there doesn't seem to be much of kind of a vision of like, what do we do two years from now? How do we get where we want to be two years from now? Well, you know, you've raised a bunch of, uh, of points and I, I want to address them all. First of all, I think it's okay. In addition to, you know, the good qualities that uh, Hillary Clinton or uh, Barack Obama had, I think there is a real ideological difference uh, on the left. And I think it's important to acknowledge that and say, I mean, there are multiple issues floating around. One is the desire to stop not only Trump, but all the Republican Party and the the, the evil and harm that it represents. Two is, uh, you know, the, this notion of incrementalism. You'd like the moon and sky, but this is all we can get right now. But three is, and I think we got to have an honest discussion about, there are honest differences of ideology between uh, a Clinton and Obama on one hand and a Bernie Sanders and uh, Keith Ellison and a couple other folks on the other. I think it's okay to say you, Hillary Clinton, you, Barack Obama, do not believe it's a good idea to try to create a universal health care system, a single-payer health care system at this point in history. We do. Well, but they and claim, oh, both Obama and Hillary Clinton publicly said, uh, that they would have preferred. They always say, if we were starting from scratch, universal health care right, would not. be better. We're and, not, and, 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 so and, a... and that that would be, in fact, a better system. And their claim is that it's not doable, not that it's not desirable. So no, that's well, well, that's they, their rhetoric. Talking, that's what they I'm, say. I know, but we're talking about present state. We're saying we think it's doable. You're saying I, it's a nice idea. It's not doable. It's a kind of dismissive. But the, the, the momentum has never been, well, tell me why it's not doable, okay? Tell me why we're not the country that created Medicare. We're not the country that created Social Security. We're not the country that went to the moon. We're not the country that created the war on poverty. All of a sudden, we can't do big things. No, I, I'm going to shift the burden of proof here in the conversation now, meaning the larger conversation, not you and uh, not the two of us, and say, 
no, no, you make your case now, you know, because because I'm not convinced, number one. And number two, there's an ideological difference. I saw it very clearly in the primary when Hillary would say with a great dismissal when Bernie said tuition free uh, uh, higher education to every qualified American student, uh, tuition free college education. And Hillary is like, I'm not giving free high, free college to Donald Trump's kids. Well, yeah, that was so disingenuous because obviously well, it was public college that Bernie was proposing right, be free, right. not that Harvard. You could make the same argument about high school. Well, I'm not going to support free high school because uh, I don't want to give it to Donald Trump's kids. But but if you if you examine the writings of a Barack Obama and the statements of a Barack Obama or a Hillary Clinton, you will find a lot of evidence of an uh, of of a um, ideology that says the best government is has a large element of privatization, a large element of downsizing, uh, uses the free market, quote unquote, to optimize and a sort of late 20th century ideology that I think has been disproven by events. So I think it's okay to say we may disagree on incrementalism. You may think it's impossible. I don't. So let's have that argument. We may disagree ideologically. I don't think you're free market competitive. Uh, I think you overtrust. You're in that cult and you don't realize we had this argument during affordable, the debate over the forming the Affordable Health Care Act. Was that there is no free market in health care. Birmingham, Alabama has one carrier uh, dominating 90 percent of the market. Most major metropolitan uh, areas in this country have one or two major carriers. The free market doesn't exist in, in the mythological way. You you elevate it. So let's have our let's hash out our ideological. But, but what do you mean by hashing it out? What how are well, these things hashed out? That's what you have primaries for, for example. I mean, people were outraged in 2016 that there was a primary challenger to the anointed candidate. Yeah, it was one of the most genteel primaries compared to 2008. It was extraordinarily genteel. I, I couldn't agree more. I, I, I was listen, I'm somebody. I don't know how you felt about this. We've never talked about it. But one of my favorite things that Bernie did, other than all the positions he took and the charisma with which he, he galvanized younger people. But I loved it in that early debate when he said, I don't give a damn about these emails. Right. I thought that was taking the high road. That was a real moral leader. And I I hated when and so many people criticized them. Oh, you're not tough enough. You didn't go for the jugular. And I felt he got a little rattled by that. And by the end, he was not quite as clear about it. But to me, that was a level of that was a real leader. That was somebody one could look up to as looking at the And it was completely consistent with the ideology, which is what matters is these other issues, not not this personal stuff. I, I, I thought the primaries were, were just, uh, uh, yes, much, much more genteel and more civilized. But the reality is... Um, how do you how, so you think there's just an inherent because of, of the Hillary Clinton's loss? You think inherently now that 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 the Democratic primaries, if properly organized and with the right candidates, will will just will go in a, in a Bernie direction because of the, the youth and because the energy is there and because of the failure of the Clinton campaign. You think that's sort of that's your trajectory for primaries, you think? No, I think there's a, I, I'm hopeful, but I'm not assured of that. I mean, I think that there's um, there's, first of all, enormous money and energy being invested right now in making sure that doesn't happen. Correct. Uh, 
And I think it's very, very – and that money and energy could very well prevail, and we could very well have a Democratic candidate in 2020 who supports charter schools and opposes private education, who's taken money from Wall Street his entire career. I'm talking about Cory Booker. Yeah, this- I, I, there's no question. Cory Booker clearly looks like the favorite of the Clinton if- wing of the party, Yes. If that yes, I think so. And if that happens, and you know, I mean, one possible scenario is that uh, the millennial generation and those of us who are older but believe in that that transformative change is possible, that a lot of us—I'm not speaking about you and me—but that a lot of uh, people with our views may be uh, turned off and alienated from the process, or there may there was a fair amount of dirty fighting on that side of the fence this this time around, and I think it may have affected the outcome of the Democratic primary. But whether it did or didn't, there could be more of that next time around. I'm hopeful. I I love to see all these Bernie crats, as they're now calling themselves, showing up for uh, for uh, California Democratic Party um, positions and and in in the northwestern part of the country, showing up all around the country. Iowa saying, yeah, we want to run for party positions and party chair and local committee and things like that. I think if you can have that kind of. I, I think to me, the real transformation comes when you have a comp. Bernie succeeded for two reasons. One, he had an overall message of change. And I'm a message guy and I believe in messages and I work on messages. And number two, people took that message to, to heart and they used it to organize themselves at a grassroots level. There was a spontaneous organization, which the campaign was then smart enough to step in and provide tools to. So I think if that continues to happen, I'm really optimistic. But it's going to be a battle. I, there's, the outcome's not certain. Well, when you talk about message, and you're also someone of the media, multimedia uh, talents and experience, um, it's obvious that we're living in this um society where there's these different bubbles, you know, and I'm in a bubble too. I read the New York times. I listen to certain things. I read certain books. I go to certain websites. Uh, there's never going to be a time when I could possibly know everything or read everything or hear every point of view. Uh, you know, you do, uh, and, and, and there's just no question in my mind that there are millions of people who, because of the information they have, because of how they grew up, because of the values that they grew up believing were virtuous, uh, are happy right now with Donald Trump. I, I, I don't think that he's become uh, unpopular among most of the people who voted for him just because, you know, I'm in so much pain and so many of my friends are about the first uh, the group of people he appointed to high office and uh, some of the early actions he's taken. And um, so much of it is based on uh, ignorance. I mean, there's a simplistic fact that I always go back to to illustrate it, which was, uh, you know, after 9-11, they did a poll um, a year later when Iraq war was starting and of of people, how many people thought uh, Saddam Hussein attacked the United States on 9-11? And I think it was 25 or 30 percent. And then the percentage of people who watched Fox News, it was 65 plus percent. So, you know, I always say, you know, if I actually thought Saddam Hussein had been personally responsible for the attack on 9-11, I might have felt differently about that war. I probably wouldn't have. I've been a pacifist my whole life. I'm against wars. But I wasn't out there protesting when they took out the Taliban right after 9-11. You know, I wasn't... uh, 
waving flags and, and, and saying kill them, but uh, but and I'm against the death penalty. I mean, I'm against killing people, right. but right. but I must say it's a very different conversation one has with oneself and friends and neighbors and politicians if you think Saddam Hussein was personally responsible or if he wasn't. And uh, similarly, I see them interviewing these Trump people about the ban on immigrants from these seven countries and talking about uh, preventing attacks like uh, San Bernardino or these other attacks, which, as you know, and people who read the websites we go to know, were not committed by people from these countries. They were mostly committed by American citizens. And um, it has literally, you know, it's, it's, it's a solution to a problem that doesn't you know, it's got other, it's a demagogic solution to people's sure. fear. It's nothing to do with actual security, but, but these people that are being interviewed, they don't know that. And right. similarly, the, um, you hear, uh, lobbyists, and this is an area that I know, you know, so well for big business or the chamber of Congress commerce will say, you know, if you raise the minimum wage, you lose jobs. And the data, as I understand it, in cities that raised the minimum wage is that there was no job loss. There was just, uh, you know, some people had some more money on the bottom. They spent it. It actually stimulated the economy. And people at the top had a tiny bit less. But without without being able to convey information to to half of the country, it's hard to think of how we get from, from here to there. And as much as I hated the world we grew up in when there were only these three smug networks providing all the news um there are some ways in which this is this is worse how, how do we find ways to communicate with people who don't uh, who aren't in our tribe we have no problem well, communicating with each other yeah i know I, 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 and that's the question and i think it starts with and also by the way people who we consider to be in our tribe but we've forgotten about like all the like all the urban residents, African American residents of states like Wisconsin who could have changed this election, but they didn't feel anybody was talking to them either. I mean, I th- I see, but I, I think it starts. It goes back to that spiritual level first of all. If I think the the the, the left has a one, if I were to add, name its biggest spiritual deficiency, it would be a lack of tolerance for ignorance. Because we were all born into a state of ignorance. I mean, you and I were born into a society where women were not supposed to work, where they were girls and and, and you call grown women girls, where, you know, and I'm not saying we didn't internalize that necessarily, but, you know, some some of us had to learn. You know, I mean, I let's just start with the fact I don't know about you. I only speak one language. Uh, I I'm I I am semi-functional in a couple others. All but, right. Well, but, there's 50 others. This, right. <laughs> most I don't know. You know, and, and then you the look one, at cultural language because generationally, you know, younger generations and much older generations, you know, have often different words. Sometimes using different the same right. word for totally different meanings. Right. Uh, but, uh, there was a time in my life. I mean, I'll, I'll just be completely candid. You know, I was abused by a teacher, a male teacher. There was a time in my young life when, as a result, I was I, I wasn't really homophobic towards gay people as individuals, but I, I used homophobic language. Yeah, uh, I, was I, at, I was a teenager used homophobic language, too. I, I, didn't, yeah. I just didn't know any better. The minute I met somebody who I knew was gay, th- that was to me was meeting somebody. Right. I, I remember I, I know in my mind who it was, and then I never said that word again. But right. uh, before that, uh, you know, I, 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 I was in ignorance and it was a nasty ignorance. Um, 
Yeah. So and, and and I guess my point being that I think one of the things that happens now on the left is there's a lot of virtue signaling, where it's to use the sociological term where some where people are more interested in proving their superior virtue by saying, oh, you know, he used a homophobic yeah, slur. Yeah. As opposed to their only, the only reason they never did was because of the circumstances into which they were born. They have their own forms of ignorance to which they are attached. So as we all do, so why not just say, well, as Martin Luther King would say, as Gandhi would say, as any great leader would say, let me educate you out of that with love rather than just judging you and dismissing you. Um, and I guess the only, in terms of communicating with people, we don't. Uh, necessarily, you know, communicate with right now. The only thing, I, other thing I would add is stop acting as if because they voted, they didn't vote for your candidate, they failed. I mean, I, you, we've talked about this before. I come from the old school of politics that says that if a candidate can't get you to vote for them, the candidate failed. It's a sales job. It's a retail job. And, 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 and Democrats in their tribalism were so quick to seize on, first it was Comey's fault, then it was Putin's fault, then it was, well, Comey and Putin didn't affect the outcome of the state houses all around the country that the Democrats lost, the governorships that they lost. Now, Republican vote rigging might have done that. So what are you doing about that? You know, voter suppression and so on, gerrymandering. But, uh, you know, they're not talking. Uh, we should concentrate on, uh, you know, what's the what's the biblical term? The moat in our own eye and not the, the beam in our own eye and not the moat in the other guys. Other, <laughs> you know, yeah, I wish I knew the Bible better that I don't think that's the exact quote, but it's a uh, yeah, it's something, it. look, look, at right, your the own, little piece of wood in own, the uh, other guy's yeah. eye. You know, you get the chance. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, right. the, the um, yeah, I gave the metaphor. There were a lot of people. I, for a long time, been an advocate that Democrats and the left also needs to reach out more to young people, that there's a, that there's a, a condescension to young people that's just endemic. Of course, I'm, I come from the music business where I'm constantly surrounded by people, as I have been since my late 20s, who think that what young people listen to is nowhere near as good as what we <laughs> listen to. And now it's... 50 years later is the same ridiculous notion that God somehow turned off the force of creativity the minute we got out of high school. But um, somebody, uh, but I think it goes for politics also. And, you know, a lot of people complain about that. Oh, well, what about the voter turnout among young people? It should be higher. And I always say, you know, in my line of work, when the audience doesn't applaud, you don't blame the audience. Exactly. You, fi you figure out how to make them applaud. You figure out how to have a better show to get that encore, to get that applause. And um, I, I do think that um, Bernie is this fascinating example of connecting with, with younger people, but, but, you know, he's not getting any younger and he's one person. And, right. and um, who, who are the other people that you see? And it doesn't have to be people in political office or running for political office, but people that have sort of the talent to project into the public sphere who who have uh, values that you're inspired by? You know, that's a great question, and I wish I had a whole list of people that I could rattle off for you. I, I don't at this point. I mean, I, I, I look to, you know, figures of the past, and I mean, I, I read a lot of history. I mean, people that are forgotten, like the Lowell Park 
girls who in Lowell, Massachusetts started their own collective and their own union in like the 19th century and then were immediately forgotten. But they created something. Eugene V. Debs, you know, who uh, who, who, who who never got more than two percent of the vote. And then then uh, FDR runs for office in 1932 and puts in Eugene V. Debs' platform 15 years later. You know, I mean, so I, I kind of look through the timeline for history. But, uh, you know, I'm very inspired, even though I worked for Bernie against a female, female candidate. I also look to the feminists of the late 60s and early 70s who there was no language for for the the information they were trying to convey they had to create their own language in order to talk about gender discrimination and gender oppression and those types of things i look to black lives matter if we if we come up to the present i look to some of the young people i've met through black lives matter who literally just stepped down in the street one day and said enough is enough and got on twitter and got on facebook and walked out and uh, onto uh, i'm blanking on the name of that that street in um, in Ferguson, uh, uh, Florissant, West Florida. You, you, you know, I mean, there are. I, I was happy to finally go there. You know, I mean, so the, I, I look to the people who are. I, I was thrilled when they occupied uh, the state house in Madison to protest what Scott Walker was doing there. There, and then protesters from Tahrir Square in Egypt were sending them pizzas yeah, from the local pizza. Yeah. I mean, that to me is one of the greatest stories I've ever heard. So, I mean, I think the fact that we're, we're a connected world now, I mean, I think that the Silicon Valley is frankly a predatory economy. And one of my big goals is to break that up because they're using government created technology to capture the wealth for themselves. But I think the connected aspect of it is excited. I think the grassroots, I think the women's march was fantastic. I was delighted to go to that march and 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 say, I will support you, you know, the women of the United States, and I will be, be in the supporting role, secondary role here to make sure you guys, this is your march, this is your day. I thought that was fantastic. But let me just, let me just um, interject something about sure. uh, protests. Um, I also thought the Women's March was fantastic, and I thought that the protests at airports following the immigration executive order were very inspiring. And what I liked about that was that you have two groups of the society who felt uh, disrespected, unsafe, under assault because of their campaign, uh, uh, and that it allowed them to see that they're not alone. And it allowed for people to feel that they were not alone, that they were part of a community that shared some of their values. And I think that's a wonderful thing about protest. Yep. But I do think that that there's a limit to the value of protests. I'm not saying that people shouldn't protest. There, are, I've been to protests. I'm sure I'll go to more in the future. And as I say, a few recently, I think, have been really positive. But but there is something about the, the uh, meme, the vibe of a protest that clearly doesn't accomplish everything that it sets out to do. I think there's people in the society that recoil at it, that it comes across too angry, that it comes across too tribal and, and judgmental mm -hmm. and rejecting other people. And I don't think that all of the people that are turned <coughs> off by those images are irredeemably evil people. I just don't believe God made I mean, so many bad people. I think there are some people that are pretty bad and, you know, mass murderers and certain political leaders and and, and, and so on. But but I, I do think that there's something about the, the decades and decades of iconography of protests that's had a two-edged sword. It's inspiring to some to some tribes 
and a symbol of sort of rejection and exclusion to, to other people. And, and, and uh, you know, it's uh, so many of the, um, there's got to be other ways of, uh, of communicating that are more inclusive, not to exclude protests, but it can't be the only tool. Because one thing we know of in Madison, Wisconsin, and I was there uh, the week after that, and it was an unbelievably exciting place to be. But as you know, they lost all of those battles. They could not convince a majority of people in Wisconsin to get rid of Scott Walker. Yeah, well, he had a lot of help from the Koch brothers. You're but right. But they're always I mean, going to have. Listen, I mean, that's not going to change. The Koch brothers two, are not going away. No, no, no. I know, of course. But and, I mean, two points. About it. First of all, small point, and then a larger point. Small point is I, I have. If you you know you you can see me on video, I have this is a card from someone named Katrina Shankland. Now Katrina Shankland was at that demonstration. She was totally apolitical, but she ran into that demonstration. She be, was, became part of the Occupy movement. I, that's how she did. She went from Occupy to those movements in Madison, Wisconsin. Now she is the leader of the Democrats in the state legislature in Wisconsin, and she is a rising star in the Democratic Party. She's an absolute delight. I've met her. So, I mean, uh, one thing that demonstrations do is they galvanize people to go to the next level, like Katrina did. But so I, I guess I would say we need a philosophy. I hear what you're saying, but it, the larger picture to me is that we need, uh, again, grounding it in the spiritual more some non-attachment to tools and more of an attachment to outcomes. Yeah. Where, uh, yeah. You know, a demonstration is just a tool. It's good for some things, bad for others. It's a pa it's a color on the palette. A candidate, whether it's Hillary Clinton or Bernie Sanders, is just a pal. It's it's our tool. They they are not values. They are not better than us. They're just something we can use. Uh, uh, you know, uh, so just use them where it's good to use them. Set them aside where it's not good to to use them. And and that's leadership. And that, but to me, it's the not when people. People say, well, you know, Hillary was my candidate. I, I'm a Bernie guy. It doesn't. No, don't be. Or I'm into demonstrations. No, don't be into demonstrations. Demonstrations have a function. Then you, you know, have to try to figure out how to translate that into concrete change. Now, just to end, I have a philosophical difference with Hillary on this. Hillary told Black Lives Matters protesters when she met with her, and I quote, I don't want to change hearts. I want to change laws. I think she has it backwards. I think you change hearts first, and then you change laws. Using, I think that's how the civil rights for example, a movement succeeded. But I do think at some point you got to change your tactics from just, hey, aren't we, you know, isn't it nice to be out in the streets? So, okay, now how are we going to get real concrete change out of this? Well, that's, you know, there has been this ridiculous argument um, in the Democratic circles. I think it started in the Obama Hillary campaign, but it probably predated that, which goes something like, well, who is really responsible for the civil rights bill? Is it LBJ or is it Martin Luther King? You know, and obviously it, history required both of them and uh, right. that it's ridiculous not to give LBJ credit for what he did. But it's ridiculous to give LBJ credit for what he didn't do. And you need both of these energies and you need the outside energy. You need the cutting edge energy and you need the mechanical energy that that that, that can that can create laws and, 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 and success. And they're not always contained in the same people. But one thing about the left is there's just been such a, um, a, a, a lack of respect between the two different worlds. I happen to believe it's kind of worse coming from 
the Washington Democratic insiders, but I don't think they have a monopoly on tribalism and snobbishness. There are a lot of people I met in the Occupy movement that I thought were completely irrational, uh, that, that were thriving more on who they weren't and, and, right. and, and then by, by any uh, vision of actually accomplishing change. And, um, you know, if we're going to start with what's in our own eye, I mean, we start with our own communities and figuring out how to reach out and not accuse everybody who disagrees with us of being a sellout. doesn't mean we change our opinions. I'm for universal health care. Nothing's going to change right. my opinion about that. I'm for free public colleges for everybody. Um, but, but, you know, um, the free public college thing, I'm sorry to jump around, but it reminds me, I read this, this book by Arlie Hochschild mm -hmm. about, uh, uh, who's a Berkeley sociologist, liberal, lefty, you know, who, who's, uh, uh, you know, she's married to Adam Hochschild, who started Mother Jones. Right. And she went to Louisiana and met a lot of Tea Party people to try to create a human connectivity. And one of the things I got out of her book um, is that a lot of what motivates right-wing opinion is 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 fear that yes the factory is polluting yes our cancer rate is going to go up but at least it creates some jobs and people's hopes are so low that they settle for so little because they just don't really believe that you can quote fight fight city hall fight billionaires fight the entrenched uh, powers and um, some of that, I don't know if you saw Adam Curtis's uh, movie. Um, Which one? Hypernormalization? Hypernormalization. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, when he does that footage of those uh, Russian women and how they said, what are your dreams? And she said, I don't have right. dreams anymore. I used to have dreams, but that's a waste of time. Right. Uh, you, you know, is that there's this. And I used to talk to people about the Bernie thing, just you'd be in cabs or about about the colleges and and people would say oh yeah it's a nice idea but you know right. you can't pay for it and i would say of course you can pay for it first of all other countries pay for for, for their citizens so we, there's plenty of models it's it, it, this idea that you can't actually make things better and you have to settle the, behind things you know comes from a, a a lack of you know a real lack of belief that it's possible not necessarily right. that these are people that philosophically believe in the goldman sachs philosophy right um and um you know it's not so easy to come up with optimistic uh, scenarios at a time like this when people are terrified but i think that's what we're somehow called upon to do so what are you going to say at this uh, spiritual politics thing? What are you going to well, talk to I don't, people about? I don't know because I'm at a pa I'm in a panel with a you know a couple other yeah yeah uh, so so I, I you know I'll talk about whatever they want me to talk yeah, about yeah but, yeah got it but but you know I, I I I think it's really important to to understand that money and I'm preaching to the choir here I know but. Money has so distorted our political debate at this point that, you know, the Democratic Party as a body has not been out there talking about what's possible. The Democratic Party, eat your peas. That that was the, the, the decisive quote from Barack Obama, who, by the way, totally misdescribed the economics of certain, you know, what the government can and can't. He said government needs to be like a family around a dinner table. Well, family does not issue a sovereign currency, much less a sovereign currency that the entire world economy... You know, this is a good place to end because it's something yeah. you know so much about and that people, I think, don't understand. Yeah. So I, could you slow that down? So imagine that, that people don't really understand the difference between a family debt and a national debt. 
because that is so much part of the rhetoric of the right. It's obviously disingenuous because they have no problem incurring death to create wars and all sorts right. of tax cuts for the rich. But that 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 notion that it's the same thing. Ross Perot used to say it. The right wing always says it. Why is that not true? Well, you know, my friend uh, Stephanie Kelton, who was Bernie's economist, is the expert in this. But basically, uh, you know, uh, a family has a fixed amount of money coming in and a fixed amount going out. A government issues its own currency. So, there, I mean, there are forces. If you issued a gazillion dollar in new currency to pay for everything you want to do, college education, you know, you create inflation, there'd be certain things that would go on. So there are real world limits, but they're nothing like what we've been told there are. They are, first of all. So we've been, you know, we've been we've been worshiping a false god of government debt being a big deal. It's not the big deal. It's 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 said to be. And number two, right now, there are places uh, Trump may change this, but there are places around the world that uh, investors that would literally pay the United States government money to hold their money. They would actually pay negative interest. So th there has never been a better time for the United States government to borrow more money and rebuild our crumbling infrastructure and educate our children and do all the things that we ought to be doing. So, I mean, the so simplest. why are why are the um, kind of Wall Street corporate conservative, the Pete Petersons of the world, who's a big zillionaire who funds a lot of think tanks uh, on the right? Why are they um, constantly harping on this issue? Of, of the national debt. There are these debt clocks you read everywhere. You would think that any minute now they're going to be wheelbarrows full of $100 bills that'll have to be used to buy a quart of milk. What What is their agenda in creating that false panic about it, which depresses all these good things like education, infrastructure, and so on? Well, the more that gets forced into the private sector, the more money they make. So if we get convinced that Social Security is going bankrupt and we turn it all over to Wall Street, right now it has a $2.6 trillion trust fund that that overnight could go to Wall Street. If we're convinced that Medicare is unsustainable, then it, you know private health insurers pick up a big piece of the slack. On and on and on. And the more we downsize government, the more we say, oh, we can't afford to do this. The more the private sector gets to step in, the more we become a Wall Street stock market economy. Unless the economy we were, let's say, in the 50s and 60s, when we were an economy where people built things, sold things and paid one another to work. OK, well, I think we'll have to do part two, maybe uh, uh -huh. maybe in a couple of months. We'll see where we are in this Trump administration. We'll see where this spiritual politics movement is going. But in the meantime, try to keep your eyes open for some uh, young leaders that we I can will. all support because we, we need them. I will. Absolutely. Uh, all right. Great. And let's try to love everybody, even if we disagree with them. I just think it's a better way to go. Yep. All right. Agreed. Thanks, man. Much, much appreciated. And tell people your, your show and where they can find you and, and what you're up to. Well, my show is called uh, The Zero Hour with uh, R.J. Eskow. It's syndicated in a few cities, Chicago and Washington. It's online and uh, iTunes, The Zero Hour. And uh, you can find out about it or become a subscriber at uh, Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash The Zero Hour. Okay. To be continued. All right. Later. Great talking to you. Yeah.